It's funny how many places can be described in a single word. Trash planet, desert planet, agricultural world, the world where they wear weird hats, warrior culture, diplomat culture. Especially when you don't really spend enough time there to really learn anything deeper about it. But what happens when you learn more? How many people are really war-minded? Is everyone a farmer? Are those silly hats just hats, or are those environmental protection gear? Talk to the Planet of Hats today on the Why Aren't You Talking About This? Nerd. Episode 6 of Why Are You Talking About This Nerd, aka Waytad Nerd. I'm your host, William, and I'll be guiding you through this intergalactic tour of stereotypes. As always, even if this is some weird form of court ordered therapy that's stopping you from being sentenced to 10 plus years in prison, or you're a legitimate fan, thank you for listening. It means the world. Now, this is usually the part of the episode where I tell you all about some cool and interesting stuff going on related to the podcast. However, as of right now, there isn't really anything going on. Unfortunately, no one has paid me enough money to start a merch line or stop posting episodes of the show. So until one of those happen, or there's some pressing emails that need attention, we can skip this part of the show and move on to the actual show. Alright, so today we are talking about the Planet of Hats. Now, if you're a big fan of this topic or show, you might be a little surprised or disappointed that this will be a shorter episode than usual. Because unfortunately, this trope doesn't really have a super deep history to it and isn't some monolithically confusing thing. But anyways, let's begin by defining what a planet of hats even is. Essentially, when a writer creates a culture, species, group, or planet, that is all one single trait. Now, most of the time, this is something that is either a single, simple character trait, like aggressive or honorable, or a gimmick. Something like warrior culture ends every sentence by spitting on the ground. But the other thing that happens a lot is taking an ancient real-world culture and kind of just slapping it on haphazardly. So, like, making an ancient Greek stand-in culture for your world, so you give them wine, hoplites, and old dudes in robes talking about horse shit in a room full of white marble. Or you want to make them look French, so you add fleur-de-lis everywhere. Or Mongols, so you give them all range weapons in a horse equivalent of your setting and say, oh, they shot out of their mom on a miniature horse. Of course, this happens with modern cultures as well, but given that for the most part, most people have at least a passing understanding of how the modern world works and looks like, it's a lot harder to use this trope with a modern culture. Often, the most recent you'll see is maybe a flanderized version of the Vietnam era. And like this definition shows, there are two forms of this trope. A simple planet of the hats and a complex planet of the hats. 
A simple plan of the hats is the one based on a single personality trait or profession. So, for example, a mercenary culture or planet of mechanics. Or it could be that everyone on this planet, for some reason, are really seething about everything all the time or are ultra-racist for no reason. A simple planet of hats is really easy to make, since the creator has to essentially just pull personality trait or job out of their ass and tell the audience, that's the culture. This is particularly used when you're telling your audience by vague culture and passing, or when you're going to be on this planet opening credits of this single episode. A complex plan of hats, on the other hand, is based off of a cultural stereotype or simplification of an entire culture into a set of traits. It's like the ancient Greek planet above, or if your heroes cross an ocean and suddenly come to contact with the Comanche, Sioux, Cherokee, Pueblo, Aztecs, that's totally 100% original and definitely not just a poor understanding of the many hundreds, if not thousands, of Native American cultures that existed across North and South America. Complex plan of hats is going to be the most common when a creator knows their audience might ask up to five questions about this new setting, and they might spend more than a tenth of an episode there. More often than not, this is focused on for an entire episode, or is the planet or faction that shows up a few more times than just a single episode. Now, there is one thing to talk about before really asking why this trait exists in the first place. As a planet of copy hats. Clever name, I know, but I didn't come up with it. The Planet Economy Hats is essentially what happens when your audience tells you, whoa, 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 whoa. Actually, what's up with those Greek dudes? And you panic and backpaddle all the way back and retrospectively world-build them to look like that. Now, less hostily, this is a perfectly valid way to world-build as a starting-off point, but when done like this, is usually kind of meh. So let's say, for example, that after going to that planet of Seath and Mauld, your audience gets interested in this culture and starts to ask questions. So they get out ahead of them and stop them from making a really cringy tweet saying, same, and turning the Voltron and Sherlock fan base interested in your art, you decide to explain why they're like that. So you make the entire plant's history be basically one long sequence of getting a hot, steamy turd laid on them by every other culture in the galaxy, and so now they're on the slow but sure path to becoming Nazis. Besides introducing something a bit darker in your world building, this is textbook plan of copy hats. This also happens a lot in fantasy with cultures like dwarves, where them living in mountains being because they decide that mountains are based and flat land is fucking cringe in easy mode. And now, why would someone do this? Well, because like we touched on earlier, it's easy. You aren't planning to give much time or attention to a particular area, it makes sense to give it a broad brush stroke of a single thing that you, your audience, or your characters actually have some interest in or get them off your fucking back so that you can keep writing the stuff you feel is actually important. Also, because the human brain is good at pattern recognition, saying this plan all do fighting real good, your audience that is into it will instantly recall the literal one fact you've told us about the world when you name drop it again. Like if you say the Galagoopers are really good close quarter void fighters and your crew of plucky humans are on the outside of their ship doing repairs, and one dude who stayed in the ship says, Galagloopers are coming to fuck our assholes into a prolapse, your audience will feel their balls sympathetically slurp onto the back of their tongue. In addition, if the purpose is to make a one-off world that's meant to be fucking wacky, weird, foreign, or a dumb joke, it's easier to do this than it would be to actually put in effort to world build. And they make for really great home worlds, especially if it's for the side characters that are really wacky or strangely skilled in one thing. Like, if you had a Gallo character that asked the team to turn off the gravity and vent the air when another ship gets boarded, 
Because if they do, they could be hung over with a broken arm blindfolded and still win the fight against anything you could throw their way. But here's the thing. The planet of hats feed off of a very insidious human trait. Our tendency to see outgroups as homogenous blobs of people love the same thoughts, ideas, opinions, and behaviors. This is why things like sexism, homophobia, racism, and nationalism are things. On the opposite side of it, we also have a tendency to see the differences in our own in-groups, meaning that we see each other in our own personal echo chambers as all aligned with diverse and the other sides of faceless massive clones. Now this wombo combo of mass long-distance travel and the internet being a mistake also works to keep the plan of hats working, because we will instantly believe it. Now this isn't to say that there isn't some truth to those human tendencies. I'm not saying the racists are right and all this inclusiveness is for nothing. No, what I'm saying is that human groups do have something called a cultural personality. This is a collection of traits, behaviors, habits, and other things shared across the culture that are seen as important to norms, even if not every single person in the culture fits into it. This can include historical focal points, moments of cultural unity and camaraderie that define a culture, behaviors common in that culture, and events that bind people together. And here's the funky thing cultural personality doesn't even really have to describe the majority of its population. For example, the cultural personality of America is rugged individualism, equality, moving towards progress in the future, and being direct in fighting the good fight even if everyone hates you for it. I doubt most people listening are really exemplars of that. Like, sure, I believe in equality and progress, but fuck am I far too self-aware of my shortcomings to be called a rugged individualist. Alright. Let's shift over into the history section. And we have an ultra-micro history section today. Don't worry, fellas, that's a normal length. So we're going to start and very, very briefly bring up ancient Greece. Now, why would we do that? Because Atlantis is actually one of the earliest examples we have of a planet of hats. This one actually has multiple. See, when Plato wrote about Atlantis, something that's very clearly an allegory, by the way, and didn't ever, ever fucking exist, the island was, in almost every way, OP as fuck. The Atlanteans were ultra-powerful, big-dick sailors with the strongest and toughest naval military ever seen. Not just in the world at the time Plato set it in, but in his day and age. Now, while that might not seem like a big deal, the technology level between when he was talking about this happening and the modern day would be like if aircraft carriers were getting fucking bodied by cavemen from 7,000 BC. Which is about 3,000 years before the Sumerians, by the way. If you're able to pull that off, then you'd be the strongest navy the planet Earth would have ever seen. But in addition to the best sailors to have ever existed, the Atlanteans were also prideful and smug motherfuckers. And what was the plan of hats opposing them? The Athenians. Now, to understand why this is silly... Keep in mind that the story is taking place in 9600 BC, back when humans were just exiting the Paleolithic around the invention of people deciding that being nomadic was dumb and that the real baller move was to stay in one place and farm like a fucking chad. And Athens was founded in 508 BC. Anyways, what was the Atlantean trait? Being more righteous than you or your mom combined. The reason they kicked the shit out of Atlantis hard enough for Poseidon to sink their entire island was because they were good boys. And while yes, this is a planet of the hats, it was also a metaphor, a political metaphor, a political propaganda metaphor, which that combination of things should really tell you 
but you shouldn't take it seriously as an attempt to make something intricate and interesting. It was an analogy to explain why Athens would kick the shit out of any other nation in the world. And moving on from the ancient Greeks, we actually don't have much until the near modern era. And why is that? Well, because of how recent and narrow this trope actually is, there isn't the lot throughout history that really fit into it. Basically, anything that could be described similarly to Atlantis versus Athens conflict could retrospectively be called a plan of hats. It's more propaganda than anything else. The other thing that can be called plans of hats are things like travelogues and travel stories. These stories are essentially where the main character or characters travel from one place to the other, encountering kooky and weird cultures along the way. Classic example is Gulliver's Travels, where Gulliver encounters cultures like the miniature Lilliputians, the giant and practicality-focused Brobdingdians, I'm going to apologize if you love Gulliver's Island, patriarchal and knowledge-obsessed Laputins, immortal Strollbrugs, Hoyntians that are motherfucking sentient horses, and the Yahoos that are animals and human bodies. Yeah, Gulliver's Travels gets fucking wild. But travelogues like this have long been things that, in retrospect, are plants of hats. And then we get to 1954. And before you think I'm going to be mean to Tolkien and steal his lunch money for making plants of hats, no, I'm not. I'm bringing up Tolkien because he's very important for this trope becoming a thing in fantasy. See, what happens when you have someone massively talented create a labor of love that transforms the entire genre they exist in forever? while a ton of other people try to do the same thing by copying what they did, but worse. See, since Tolkien put the effort into world-building so effectively that's practically invisible and the notes have all been turned into books with more pages than the distance between the moon to my balls and back again, people started to think that's what you need for an earth-shaker of a story. And so, since then, people have tried to do the same thing with none of the effort, meaning make things that look like it has deep world-building without any of the effort. And this is where fantasy gets into all the different kinds of coding, and also the plants of hats. Because it's very easy to appeal to a reader base that love Tolkien if you say, hey, this culture wears the elf hat, or hey, this is the Gondor hat. Instead of trying to make your own interesting nations, these people have never even heard of. And since then, things like elves and dwarves have become their own metacultures that are capable of getting turned into marketable hats and slapped onto their race equivalents in your world. Which is a weird concept to me, to be honest, that this little metaverse of fantasy exists and is so real that people can recognize it as easily as when people slap the Roman label onto something. The next big revolution of this trope is in 1969, the release of Star Trek. Now, while they did hardcore introduce the idea of Plants of Hats, with even one of their episodes being the origin of the trope's name, I'm not going to give Star Trek a hard time with it, because Star Trek is an episodic show that was highly experimental for its time. Budget was minuscule, and the easiest way to create the villains or background civilization for the episode was to have some poor Paramount intern pull a tray at random out of the word jumble and then base the entire civilization on it. And it's only when the show got bigger or audience liked particular species is when they went back and retrospectively added lore. And regardless, this left a huge imprint on sci-fi, and not just because this was an easy thing to do, but because everyone has nostalgia boners for the stuff that they were raised on. If you're an artist, 90% of your art is on some level trying to recapture that feeling of nostalgia that you're never going to grab because you're a jaded, scumbled adult now. So obviously, when this whole generation raised on Star Trek, grew up and started writing sci-fi, one of the things they copied is the massive list of single-characteristic alien races. 
but this time without the budget constraints. Now, one thing that should have known better came around in 1977, Star Wars. Whoa there, I see the laser pitchforks and kyber torches. Well, again, I'll give the original series the grace since it's the time, and also things like Luke's homeworld being a desert planet is one of those wacky, goofy homeworld quirks, and it has the same budget constraints. What's the excuse later on? Like, for example, if in the original, the Twi'leks, the ones with the two head tendril shoulder boulders, for those of you who aren't fucking nerds, appear in the original trilogy as, like, Arag dancers in Jabba's palace, right? Well, then why the fucking old Star Wars canon is their race canonically sex slaves? And why are the Huts all crime lords? Or the Mandalorians all honor-obsessed mercenary soldiers? And yes, many of you Star Wars fans currently lining up outside my house to be screaming and wailing them as a fucknut and ignoring the written lore. But I swear to hell and Jeebus that that fucking world-building was created solely to rationalize how they treated the aliens in the movies and not to build an interesting world. You know why? Because in most places, that's never explained. And what about all those stereotypical ethnic hats? Alright, well-deserved Star Wars rant aside, how much has this trope been used since? Everywhere. Well, sure, that is a little extreme, this trope lives on in sci-fi to an incredible degree. While slowly being less and less relevant in fantasy as people are becoming tired of the ancient Roman but medieval times, the number of sci-fi projects and shows that use this remain almost, if not exactly, the same. And because I would rather not just give a list of settings with this trope, it's going to be the first of the episodes we've had so far, but far from the last, we have an extra short timeline. Because the things I just mentioned are really the parts that are highly relevant to this discussion. Especially because the term Planet of Hats can only really be traced back to, like, 2005. While I can't find exactly what the context was, this being the first time it appears on the internet tells me they've been thinking about this as a nerd dump for at least 18 years. What this also means is that a lot of stuff tends to get back explained to this trope, meaning that before it was coined, it was just how sci-fi was or it was a writing gimmick, not a named trope. But enough of the justifying, and let's talk about where this trope stands today. <laughs> So, as you might expect, like a lot of other broad-stroke tropes, Planet of Hats has received more attention lately than it has in the past. Largely, this is a highly cellular effort by the nerd community to not be so fucking ignorant and make more interesting settings that are a lot more fleshed out and a lot less stereotypical. And the majority of its use is still in its original best use case. Episodic shows, comics, movies, games, etc., where the actual culture and society of the place you're in doesn't super matter, because either there isn't enough interaction or mention of it to warrant such an in-depth look at the culture, or it's more or less a funky and cool backdrop that may or may not be important later. In the first case, that would include things like XCOM 2, where the human allied factions are fairly straightforward, like the skirmishers being honorable rebel warriors, or the reapers being sneaky survivalists. And you don't need to know more than that, because by and large, XCOM is a mechanics-based game that has a story to keep you interested and attach mechanics to, and isn't really a visual drama. And even then, they go deeper than they have to at times, giving the skirmishers a semi-fleshed-out language and stuff. Well, the second case shows like Doctor Who or Stargate are good examples, where the exact setting from week to week changes, and it doesn't really matter where you are because it's the general vibe that matters for that episode. 
Now, the other major place it's used is in things like role-playing games or war games that has a ton of factions, organizations, and even down to specific UDT units or armies. Like Warhammer Fantasy having Amazons, or the specific sub-faction of Kara Kedrin being an entire society of Death Wish having Slayer cults. Or a world like the Forgotten Realms having its own insert Aztecs here part of the map. And in these cases, like the ones above, this is to add variety and flavor to a world that might be lacking in it without actually putting in the amount of effort required to create something that players might never even give a shit about. However, something else to bring up is how it's used in a lot of other places. Besides being used to joke and self-aware settings, a slight jab at the genre and slightly less self-aware settings, or fancy set dressing, there's another thing that uses this a lot. Topical stories. And look, I know it's very tempting to panic and drive your car off the road in blind terror, but it's going to be okay. We're not talking about Bright. Wait, fuck. Okay, now we're not talking about Bright. Huh. Whatever. Okay, a lot of creators will also use the plan of hats to discuss controversial topics or social problems that they perceive. This is because they can stay vague while still being generally in the right ballpark enough to ensure the audience that they're trying to do an allegory without pissing people off or making themselves the audience of the people, making sure that their art is displayed for the masses too uncomfortable. And I hate this. Why do I hate it? Because it's incredibly reductionary. The whole point of this trope is to simplify and flatten things out to make it easier to haphazardly shove into your story. It's like the anal dilators of world building. And I really hope that wasn't the aha moment for some of you. What doing this to an allegory does is flatten the problem, meaning if you don't nail it directly through the heart, most people respond with, but it's not like that at all, or the ever-dread rhetorical, so do you think that X and Y are the same? So like, if you want to talk about police brutality in your superhero show, so you plan of hats it by having your heroes go to a planet where every crime is punishable by immediate death, you aren't really talking about the problem. Because police brutality has so much more going into it than just criminals should die, Lamau. It would honestly probably be better if you had a character turn to face the camera and say point blank, Hey guys, I know we've had a lot of fun today, but police violence is a difficult and controversial issue, and while we can continue to debate exactly what the causes are, it's best that we pass litigation to address the issue to ensure more American citizens aren't killed by the people meant to protect them. Because then you'd actually be saying anything useful. Even something like just having a character turn to the camera and say, Remember kids, police officers never lie, and all violence is ultimately because of the victim. At least then we'd know you're an asshole. And so where does this trope stand in the realm of opinion? Well, like most other episodes, we'll be looking at people with a pro-Plan of Hats argument and people with an anti-Plan of Hats argument. These arguments fall into two general categories, as in-world or world-building arguments and a meta-argument. Beginning with the pro side, their first argument is that in galaxy-wide or other huge settings where there are large setting-spanning powers, it would make sense that certain portions or regions of the setting become highly specialized. Because as people interact and find their place in these large-scale societies, they'll eventually find the exact community that they want to be in who would reasonably have similar values. And because they can both culturally and economically specialize since other worlds or regions could cover for the needs of these kinds of cultures. For example, a warrior culture that comes from a single planet could be from generations of specializing for warfare, and the more and more specialized the culture becomes in it, the more resources they are given to incentivize being better soldiers. The second argument is that most societies and cultures have a specific hat to an outside observer. That really, wherever a species exists or a society, 
that species or society has something that outsiders know them for, even if there's a deeper context or a lot more to the culture than just that. For example, the U.S. The hat of the U.S., depending on where you are, is something along the lines of loud, dumb, militant asshole to loud, dumb, lovable goober. While in the U.S., a lot of us have a better idea of our own culture, which lets us say things like, Southerners are different from Pacific Northwesterners, despite the fact that if you ask a random dude on the street about half the places in the world what the difference was, they'd say one's fat from grits and the other's fat from beer, assuming they can even be fucked to care enough to know the significant cultural differences between the two. This can also be said about subcultures and insular organizations within a larger culture as well. Like how if you're from Oregon's Willamette Valley, you can pretty easily tell when someone's from Eastern Oregon, even if they take off their Trump hat. The third argument, once again getting into the world-building reasons, is that we're thinking about this in a much too human way. While yes, human cultures can often fracture and split, and beliefs quickly become traditions, it wouldn't necessarily be true for longer-lived creatures, especially significantly longer-lived creatures. Like, if someone lives for a thousand years, the things that would become ancient myth in human cultures is still distinctly remembered events in this culture. Basically, because your old people die less often and there's a greater amount of living social information, the culture has less facets and could very easily be condensed into a single set of traits and behaviors. Fourth is that a plant of hats could exist in a setting alongside larger and better fleshed out cultures. Because these cultures can very easily represent some subcultures, colonies, or isolated loyalist factions, they're more loyal to their particular aspect of the culture compared to the culture and nationality as a whole. And this is justified as the people in that culture choosing to be there, and so that engenders a deeper sense of loyalty to the core principle they're founded on. For example, say you were creating a fantasy setting where the totally not Roman at all empire fell a few hundred years ago, but you still want to draw people in by using Latin words and the idea of a professional military with square shields. So you say that one of their allegiance was lost way out in bumfuck nowhere, and rather than abandoning the army, decide, fuck it, I'll start my own army with blackjack and hookers, and then built a brand new society around the military doctrine of that empire, that would be a Roman legion planet of hats. That's a cool one. It's actually interesting to read about, and can provide a wacky backdrop to an episode. Okay, their final one, which is a meta reason through and through, is that it actually gets you creating. Because while yes, it would be great be able to be well-researched and do a deep dive into the history of ancient Rome, create a society that is almost exactly like theirs was, congratulations, you spent 30 hours this week researching so you could drop a few lines about them said by a side character that all your readers hate. You could have spent that time writing instead. Now, looking at these arguments, it seems pretty convincing, right? Like, sure, it's a little flat and might seem pretty stereotypical on the surface, it's actually far easier to explain or to use without your audience really questioning. Unfortunately, I think that like the trope itself, a good number of these arguments fall flat. Because if you're going to go through the effort of explaining that the totally not just a warrior culture aliens have more depth because they're actually a fractured group and yada yada yada, why don't you just put in that effort originally to make the group a lot more interesting and a lot less planet of Hattie? Why, if you put this effort into explaining why you wanted to use this trope, but didn't you make it an actual society with people who have differing opinions and beliefs and aren't just all hoorah buzz cut space marines? Don't sue me, GW. Okay, now for the anti-hatters. Their first argument is that in large-scale cultures, regardless of what the pro-people want you to believe, 
They're putting chemicals in the water to turn the frogs gay, and also large-scale societies wouldn't develop into these cellular little homogenic pockets. See, when large-scale societies or species are able to intermingle their thoughts, opinions, and cultures, what happens isn't a homogeny. Instead, what happens is infinitely subdivided subcultures of subcultures of other subcultures that's exactly one one-hundredth of the entire regional population. Where do people from cultures all over the world with billions of opinions and thoughts able to connect and interact freely? The internet. And think of all the cultures of the following social media sites. Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit, and 4chan. All four of these sites have their own culture, but they also have their own subcultures. Like, yes, Reddit and Tumblr culture are pretty different, but gaming Reddit and fuck you, this is Reddit Reddit are equally as different cultures. Secondly, there's no conceivable way to make a large group of people big enough to be considered a whole-ass culture be similar enough to all wear the same hat. Even relatively small groups are hard to put a hat on, especially in a more realistic setting or the real world. Like if you've ever tried to make a group decision for a project in school. It's pretty hard to make one that everyone's going to be happy with. And even if you do, everyone in the group probably has a different idea of what exactly it is until the end. And that's what? Four people? Now imagine a culture of millions of people. How many of them do you think have similar ideas of society? Third is a meta reason. The plan of hats might not be worth it to use because even if the author or authors decide to not use it for shitty things or ideas, the audience very well might. Like, for example, if you have a species that is canonically never seen outside of being the slave of other races, you very well might have people in the audience be like, you see, the reason why is because they're biologically designed for slavery. And then you have every member of your fan group that isn't white looking between each other like the good, the bad, and the ugly of being fucking mortified. Or alternatively, if you use it enough, your audience will automatically assume the first member of a group represents the entire group. Like if you have eight people in a row, all represent their entire fucking race, and then introduce a ninth that's kind of an asshole, you'd be stupid to wonder why your audience hates that entire species because you've established that cultures are ultra-homogenous in your settings. In either case, some of the least self-aware or shittiest audience members might latch onto it and take away the lesson that, oh, this sci-fi thing happens in real life, or your least self-aware and most self-righteous audience members might latch onto it and decide that you're an irredeemable scumbag when you didn't mean to be. Their next argument is that even if you happen to have a fairly homogenous culture that you can get all on the same page that Greco-Roman orgies and swords are pretty fucking badass, actually. It's not really possible to create a culture where everyone thinks about it in the same way. Beating the dead horse of warrior culture again. Does everyone in the culture agree that the only path of the warrior is melee combat with a sword and nothing else counts? And if so, do they all agree on the same forms? And if so, why aren't they a footnote in history yet? Because everyone fighting literally exactly the same way is exactly what military strategists cream their tidy whities wishing for. People are people, so even if you have a consistent cultural identity, every member of that culture will have a distinct and different approach to what that means. Like the whole Greco-Roman orgy thing. If the entire culture is into that, then no one is into it in the exact same way. Some people like the sex, and others are not only there for the all-you-can-eat grapes and shrimp they're offering afterwards, and others still really like the sense of community that comes with seeing your neighbor Jared's ball sack smack back and forth on Susan's forehead. And finally, the other reason is that this is a very, very common tool used by people that are better writers than you that have made more interesting stuff in the past. And now, 
people are starting to see it as boring and are recognizing how cardboard school play prop everything feels. With all of that, you're never going to be able to compete or tell a unique story with it. I don't care what literature science says. I'm not buying this liberal bullshit anymore. Alright, the harshness aside, they are right. I mean, most people know that this is a kind of boring trope, or at least aware enough of it that they'll sniff it out and be kind of uninterested in the set dressing, or even think you're trying to be more Star Trek than motherfucking Star Trek. So just don't use it for that reason. And having that covered, let's quickly talk about why this matters. Beginning with the less serious reason, because this trope is so common in both cult classic sci-fi and just straight up hot fucking garbage, it's very clearly finicky. Because if you use it well, you can pump out odd godly number of episodes or issues short period of time that all feel unique and weird in a good way. Which is really, really awesome, because in this case, you aren't wasting your time world-building and these backdrops are fun enough that your audience is actually deeply invested in what's happening. Of course, on the other hand, this is something that if you fuck up is going to be fucking awful. And why is that? Well, because by definition, this is a placeholder trope. So it either has to be replaced, even if with replicants of itself, or you need to distract your audience so they aren't constantly looking at that super shitty painting at the back of your mediocre play of Rome-ish. Now the other thing is that if you fuck up this trope, you also might make your audience lose confidence in the parts of the story they haven't seen yet. Like if you make a backdrop of ancient Egyptian-esque culture and then confuse the Egyptians and Aztecs are different, and so you're like, Ah, Egyptians, the ones with the paddle swords and jaguars, right? Your audience will rightfully ask, Hey, do you know what you're doing? And just like that, not only is it a shitty planet of hats, but such an easy trope to do, your audience is already primed to hate what you're writing next. If your cringe scanners are overactive like mine, they'll just fucking bail. And now for the actually important one. Representation. Using the stereotype of real-world culture has a real risk for the backwash effect. Go back to episode 3 if you don't know what that is. Because as you imagine, turning a culture into a general concept to use as world-building in the background can reasonably cause some inaccuracies that people that don't know better can very easily spread or latch onto. It can also make the general understanding of that culture much harder for the common person to find. Like with Vikings. The number of layers of bullshit you have to dig through to find anything actually about the Norse online is maddening. Because Viking has been used so often in fiction as a category of people that the vague Vikingness becomes its own thing and is usually confused with the real history of not just Viking, but Norse culture as a whole. And this is just with cultures you've largely flattened out. What about if you take the idea of a proud, honor-based warrior culture in your story? Some people are going to immediately think, oh, Japanese. Which, for the record, isn't your fault necessarily. But the stereotype of Japan to this day has some basis in this, meaning that proud, honor-based cultures make people think of them to some degree, and if it's overdone, people can get so burnt out on this trope it begins to apply to real-world cultures with similar features. Now, do I think this will lead to racial violence, racism, or other forms of bigotry? No, not really. This sucks and is a bit backslide to have people begin thinking of real-world cultures as being boring, overdone, or even useless because people can't figure out how to make a proud honor culture correctly in their writing. Now, I recognize that with this topic, these are a bit more of a stretch than usual. And yeah, they are. 
that's because these are relatively minor things we haven't covered before. We've talked about representation mattering in episode 3, and how your fiction can hurt people by accident in episodes 1, 3, and 5. And the plan of hacks trope is essentially that exact carelessness, but put in as a placeholder for something cooler that never gets removed. What I've given you above are just some examples of it. So let's talk about how you actually use this effectively. We're going to start this first with the assumption that you've already done this and are now trying to get yourself out of your audience calling you out for being lazy. Don't worry, I got you. So the first thing to do is to lessen the impact of this trope. And how you do that? by showing division in the interpretations of that culture's values or different aspects of its values being played up by different factions and, even better, individual characters. Like, for example, if your heroes have been surrounded by the super xenophobic hatted aliens and their fleet is charging up weapons, introduce an argument. Like, hey, are you sure that the holy book we're basing this totally justified xenophobia on says to kill aliens or just to hate them? Because my evangelical Xenofuckoffian tome says that. And have the response be, well, I'm part of the fundamentalist Xenofuckoffians, so yes, we should kill them. And why should you do this? Well, because one, it shows to your audience they aren't all exactly the same, and that different people in the culture have different thoughts, even if they are overall aligned. Also, this is a great opening for your characters to negotiate or escape, or even hint at future plot developments you could explore like a civil war between these factions. Now, the other option to lessen the impact is to promise more world-building in the future. A moment like the one above is a good example because you're telling your audience more is going on here. Or you have a character outright say that. But of course, you have to then actually world-build. You can't just say, don't worry, son, I'll play ball with you later because I might cause some audience resentment. And you could always lean into it. What do I mean? Well, essentially tell your audience, haha, good catch, that's totally what's happening here, really sarcastically. And then reveal that actually it was your intention the whole time to flesh things out more. So that's the case, good on you for being clever. But considering you asked for my help, that isn't what happened. Essentially do some live world building. Has your audience clung onto the Xenofuckoffians? Then start having some more world building about them. But the other thing you need to consider is if this is even a problem in the first place. What do I mean by that? Well, because this is a very useful trope to straight up use in a few different situations. Firstly, as a footnote, like if you're name dropping places, putting names on a map, or your characters are literally just passing through, why are you going to spend a lot of time world building? Sometimes it's okay to just say, hey, this place is ancient Egypt and we're never going to talk about it again, if that's appropriate for your story. This is especially if your story is already dense enough, or the point of your story isn't a sense of discovery and being a tour guide through the weird little funky world you made for your audience. If the point is everything is terrible, actually, and also here's a lore book, you need to read at least 400 pages of that to understand what's happening, your audience doesn't give a single crumb of a shit that you're name-dropped to a place that sounds suspiciously American that gets butt cheeks clapped by zombies, aliens, demons, or whatever the fuck, because they've got it enough on their minds as is. Well, like we've touched on before, if the point is to explore this fun little world, a plan of hats collapses faster than my will to live, balanced on a house of cards. Because with one question, what is that? This entire three sentence worth of civilization turns into cardboard and everyone in your audience realizes you're a bullshit artist. The secondly is as a gag or spoof. 
This is only really applicable in lighthearted or humorous settings, and the joke isn't, huh, look at that group of real people I don't like. Isn't their way of life dumb and also silly? The joke is that for this, you're picking intentionally stupid hats to slap on your space alien. So instead of Roman, slap on the Roman bureaucracy or Roman debauchery, and then watch as people sigh and go, yep, that's just those darn Romans. Or make their hat just outright fucking stupid, like this plan is literally all scammers. And then go watch Kid Boga and see what it sounds like when you scam scammers by collect calling 30 of them and telling them you're going to give them $5 million and slap down your story as the entire plan's history. Alternatively, you make the hat be one that's commonly used and prove to your audience that you're a giga brand that gets the joke. Like, yes, that's a warrior culture where all they do is think about and train for war. Their economy is a lump of dog shit, and their currency actively devalues any other economy it's introduced to. Also, none of them can cook something that isn't made out of a can, and robots make their clothes because they don't know how to do stuff that doesn't support the military-industrial complex. And the final way to use it is as a character's homeworld or homeland. While this does have drawbacks like making the culture seem entirely built for that character's sake and not really engaging in the sense of looking like a place that could exist, but you can also use this for really cool character moments and character concepts. Also, these aren't out of my brain. I was struggling with the application section of this episode for a while because everything you just read above felt really thin. So I watched OSP to get excited about this trope again. And anyways, uh, thank you, Red of OSP, for basically handing me these. All right, the first broad character is to make them an exemplar of their plant's hat. Like have your hyper-intelligent psychic come from a planet of hyper-intelligent psychics. As an exemplar, they adhere to the ideas of that culture really well. And what are some character moments? Maybe put the group into a fight on the planet, and they make their fellow psychic clutch their pearls because they pick up a gun. Because as we all know, bullets beat brain powers. And this moment creates tension between themselves and their homeland, and demonstrates how much they've changed as a person. Or they go to their home planet and start acting weird and jealous about their friends, maybe worried that they'll replace them with a more powerful psychic. Or they slip right back in their cultural behavior, waking out everyone who went with them. I really, the possibilities are endless, but you also have to ask why someone who's an exemplar would leave in the first place, and why they would choose to go back with their friends if they visit home. It's also a good idea to think about what other cultures think of them as well, since if they're really, really good at portraying their home culture, reasonably people that are antagonists to their homeland will also hate them. Second is the outsider. While they adhere to the ideals of their culture, they're considered taboo, weak, or an untouchable in their homeland. Like if you have a culture of slave-taking warrior women Amazons, don't think too long about why I'm using this as an example, and the character from there is a badass warrior woman, but hasn't taken any slaves, they'd be considered low class. While outside of their home culture, they may be the most powerful fighter in the entire fucking story, including the villain's minions, they're a weakling when they come back home. And this is really good for some good old-fashioned character angst, and the same worries as the exemplar that their friends will replace them. Also a good chance, with this one in particular, for their friends to be worried about losing them as they come home with a whole party of quote-unquote slaves, she suddenly jumped up the chain of command. What this also gives you is the ability to have this character experience catharsis by standing up and saying, all of you can lick my clit, out in the real world I'm the biggest badass on the planet, and you dad fuckers don't get to talk down to me anymore and do the sucker gesture and walk out. While here, it's a lot easier to explain why they left, you'll have to do more legwork to explain why this character isn't a shithead, especially if the planet of hats they live on is shithead world. Which leads us to Rejector, the third and final type. 
A rejecter is someone who actively denies their homeland's hat. Now, most commonly, if you're following a group of heroes, this will be someone from the bad side that is now on the good side. While this not only has the benefit of your character's better understanding what's up with the conspicuously spiky and blood-covered evil minions, but also allows you to humanize them. Well, some of them at least. However, you don't have to do this. For example, your rejector is a scrawny weak boy from the Viking hat. Their rejection can be that they're a master strategist and don't get involved directly in a fight. And again, this makes for some good catharsis if they go back home. Because sure, dad might not approve them a 5'4 no muscle having ass filthy fucking book reader. My 6'6 Amazonian warrior woman girlfriend really likes being able to fire me and carry me around. Also, guess what, Dad? She could single-handedly kick the everlasting shit out of every warrior in our village at once and come out unscathed. Now, obviously, because a lot of us nerds are going to relate extra hard to a rejector like that, you got to have the catharsis be an important moment and not a side note. The other weakness of this particular kind of character is instead of making their plan be where they're from and an explanation of their weird quirks, you're actively defining them against it, like a rebel that peaked in high school. But, I mean, those are really the ways to use this trope most effectively. Start off with it and slowly reveal information to your audience. Make it a joke. Set it up and don't ever fucking look at her. I swear to Christ it'll topple over. Or as an origin point to explain why your main characters are so fucking weird. Alright, and let's go to the soapbox. So at the end of this, what do I think of this trope? Well, as embarrassing it might be to admit after spending the entire episode relentlessly dumping my asshole onto it, I actually really like this trope. And not because I think it's some masterpiece of world building or some beautifully simple thing that is always applicable, but because it's silly and dumb when used right. Because this is a trope that started from an understandable place of having limited amounts of time and money to create the next episode. I think when it exists in that place, it's campy in all the best ways. Outside of that, it gets progressively dumber and harder to accept the hoops to jump through for it to not collapse entirely. What I also really like as a world-building baseline, because oftentimes when I'm writing a world-building, well, I have certain areas of the world to have a feel to it. So I'll use this hat and sit down and think, okay, but how would that actually work? Like, I'll take the dwarf hat and then modify it to fit into the setting I'm writing. That's a really good way to use this. Even in episodic narratives where you just need a culture to fill in the blanks, I think that's a pretty good way to do it. And what's the bad parts? For me, this is a really bad trope for any real-world analogies or pulling from cultures people give a shit about. Like current cultures, ones that are highly respected or attached closely to an ethnicity, are cultures that are already maligned and targeted for no fault of their own. And this is a weak trope for analogies because the point of a plan of hats is to flatten out the world building to make it easier to use. But real life is complicated and intricate and you can't just haphazardly crush it down and grind off the serial numbers and have something that still works. In these cases, you fly really close to being just outright racist, sexist, or some other kind of phobic. So will I keep using it? Yeah, it's fun and easy and funny and I... Very rarely, if ever, I'm happy with, oh, you know, Greeks, and moving on. I love the world build, and this is a great start. Will I judge you for using it? I am probably not. Unless you're trying to make an allegory for gay people using a race of aliens that just love human dick and balls, or something equally as dumb. 
But anyways, let's end the episode. And there is episode six done. Hope you enjoyed it. Even if it felt a little thinner than normal, gotta play the backdrop. Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else it is you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at waytatpods at gmail.com. That's W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. With questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, I'm actually funky hats you own and wear, your plan of hat and coordinates, and what the dumbest plan of hats culture you've ever seen that actually works was. Also, follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytap, where I talk about things that happen in the U.S. that are usually a bit more soul-crushing than this. Alright, have a good night, have fun, keep writing, and remember, most places won't let you wear your hat inside. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This Nerd Edition. I've been your host, William. Good night. (laughs) 